The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And I do this as a public service, because people who do not know how the world really works, well, they pretty much make a mess of their lives. Because if you don't know how the world really works, then there are a whole lot of things you're not going to be able to do. Things having to do with how you relate to other people, how you relate to money, how you relate uh, romantically, in every possible way. Knowing how the world really works is an enormous asset. And that is what we cover on this show. How do you know if you are a prime candidate for the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show? How would you know if you do need instruction in how the world really works? Well, if you whine about things being unfair, then you do not know how the world really works. Yes, if it were not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you feel everyone has a right to medical care, everyone has a right to housing, or everyone has a right to a job, or everyone has a right to a trampoline or a hamster, well, then you do not have a clue. Yes, if not for me, you wouldn't have a clue about how the world really works. If you're a married guy and you feel you no longer need to worry about your personal conduct, you don't have a clue. You don't know how the world really works. If you're a married woman and you feel you no longer need worry about your appearance, you don't know how the world really works. If you're a single guy and you feel that a woman should care about you and not your bank account, <laughs> you don't know how the world really works, as a matter of fact. I just wouldn't have if not for you. Yes, if not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're a single woman and you feel that a guy telling you he loves you, that means something, you don't know how the world really works. You do not have a clue. If your main focus while interviewing for a job are questions that might violate your rights under government law, if that's your main focus when you're trying to get a job, you don't have a clue. You do not know how the world really works. If you're a married guy and you feel that career decisions confronting your wife are her business and that expressing your opinion or your preference would violate your commitment to feminism, you do not know how the world really works. You don't have a clue. I just wouldn't have a clue. If not for 
Yes, if not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're a parent and you feel that your primary obligation to your children is getting them on that yellow school bus every morning, you do not know how the world really works. If you're a parent and you feel that encouraging your kids to address you by your first name will help them develop into normal, healthy adults, you don't have a clue about how the world really works. Yes, if not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're a parent and would rather your children cheat at an exam than smoke a cigarette... I just wouldn't have a clue. Yes, not for you. Well, yes, you do not have a clue about how the world really works. If you're a parent and you occasionally say to your child, don't tell your mother or, or don't tell your father, you do not know how the world really works. If you're a single mother or a single father and you expect your child to accept your boyfriend or your girlfriend with warmth and enthusiasm, well, you don't know how the world really works. If it weren't for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're a parent and you feel it's okay for a doctor or a nurse to insist on speaking to your 12-year-old without you being in the room, you don't have a clue. You don't know how the world really works. If you're a parent and you feel it's not right to impose your moral values on your children, you do not know how the world really works. Yeah, right, if not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're an engaged guy and you encourage your lady to keep her own name after marriage in the hope that it will show her how wonderfully enlightened you are, you don't have a clue. You do not know how the world really works. If you're a guy who's been dating a girl for four years now, confident that it's working out really well for both of you, you do not know how the world really works. I just wouldn't have a clue If not for you If not for me, you wouldn't have a clue. If you're a young guy and you feel that enjoying your job is more important than how much money you're earning, you do not know how the world really works. You don't have a clue. If you're a married guy who feels your wife ought to be cool with your platonic relationships with ex-girlfriends or with female work associates, for that matter, you do not know how the world really works. If you're a married woman and you feel your first priority is not your husband but your children, you do not have a clue about how the world really works. If you talk your girlfriend into agreeing you won't have any children after you marry, and then you later expect her to happily stick to that agreement, you do not know how the world really works. That's right. If it weren't for me, you wouldn't have a clue. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what we focus on in this show making sure that we all understand with a deep certainty rooted in every molecule of our consciousness that we really get how the world really works. And one way the world really works is that I really enjoy a sense of community with you when 
I am in receipt of letters from you. That helps to just keep me very focused on your face in front of me and the awareness that, indeed, we do constitute a community of people unified by this occasion, this weekly opportunity to share the ideas that really count and to talk about the things that really matter in our lives. And so uh, uh, every now and then I like reading some of the letters. I get far too many letters. Thank you all uh, to read. But, uh, but some of them, uh, every now and then I just take an opportunity. So I'm going to read you just three recent letters. Um, this one's from Mary Violet. Uh, today I listened to the podcast when you were talking to a group of business people, Choose One Lens to Reality. And I must say your teaching of the history of Islam and September the 11th, uh, the difference between Belgium and Holland, northern and southern Ireland and northern and southern Italy, uh, Bible reading, Roman Catholic teachings, reading aloud, writing a diary, all this touched me. I was raised Roman Catholic and you sure spoke to my soul. Short my story. After renewal in the Catholic Church, where Bible study was encouraged in the 80s, I was in my mid-30s, and I accepted Jesus. I was abandoned by my husband. I had to make a living for myself. I went to nursing school, graduated number one in my class at the age of 48, and I believe it to be because I write and read aloud all the time. Well, enough of my history. This is how I relate. Thank you and Susan. Uh, I watch TCT show on television, Ancient Jewish Wisdom. I listen to your podcast, and I read that you need a rabbi. Please let me know uh, how I can post directly to the rabbi. I cannot find the contact us on the webpage. Um, it's, it's there on the webpage under About Us, so don't, uh, don't hesitate to uh, get into that. Um, then here's one from Mike. Uh, dear Rabbi Lappin, I just wanted to drop you a line to thank you again for your time and wisdom at the conference this week. I was blown away by much of what you had to say. I loved the historic information you included in your talk. I found it all fascinating. It was also really great to have a five-minute chat with you afterwards. As a fellow South African now living in the UK, I loved hearing your teaching in such a familiar accent. You mentioned that your parents shipped you off to school in the United Kingdom from South Africa when you were young. I meant to ask you where that was. Uh, Mike was actually in Devon. It was in, uh, south, uh, in the South England, was a boarding school. Anyway, I hope our paths will cross again at some point in the future, possibly in the United Kingdom when you're over there doing one of your lecture tours. Thank you again and wishing you all the best. And that was the second letter I wanted to, to share. And um, I wanted to um, read one more. Here's the last one. This one's from Paul, and it reads, uh, I keep glossing over the fantasy every time I listen to you that I'm going to be the one to send you some mind-bending email that you feel compelled to share with the world. But I'll never send one if those are the standards. So I just really wanted to say thank you and Susan for just about all you do, and God bless. If you keep the sort of information, uh, oh, if you keep the sort of information, writes Mike, I'm an extremely spoiled white trust fund baby person born in 1981 and raised in Southern California, married, five kids, working full time as a, and for privacy reasons, I'm not going to say uh, what his uh, profession is, 
at our very own, and here he mentions the branch of a national well-known chain. And um, he says, I love the guys I work with. I thank God continuously for my good fortune and was introduced to you through wall builders. Uh, I see no reason why I won't stand before you one day with my wife, shake your hands and say hello. That's from Paul. Uh, Paul, I look forward to that. And um, uh, I'm, I'm very impressed that as a trust fund baby, uh, you hold down a job in not an easy, not an easy occupation. So uh, congratulations for that. I admire it, and I'm I'm pleased you rose, and I'm pleased that uh, you uh, that I hear hear it from you. And no, it doesn't have to be a mind-bending email to be read. Uh, it's it's just um, an email that shows the diversity of our listenership, and uh, and also what what I think of, frankly, is the the quality. Of the folks who are part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. Now, uh, one of the things that I like reminding you about is that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And one of the things that never changes is that we human beings are more impacted by our beliefs than about our facts. Our behavior is more likely to be shaped by the beliefs we have than by the facts we know. And that's why it is that uh, I have never been puzzled or bothered by the question that gets raised in Philosophy 101 courses in kindergartens around America, I mean universities around America, and that is, oh, how is it possible that the German people who had achieved such a level of culture in music and philosophy and in science, how were they capable of perpetrating the Holocaust where they methodically and mechanically slaughtered millions of people? How is that possible? The answer is, there's no contradiction whatsoever. What you know has no bearing on how you behave, only what you believe. And, uh, you know, look, um, let's say you know a whole lot about molecular biology. That still doesn't tell me what sort of person you are. Or to put another way, if, um, if you and I... Uh, are the only survivors of a shipwreck, and um, and one of us is carrying a priceless pouch of rare gems and diamonds, and this was known right on the boat, uh, on the voyage, on the cruise. Everybody spoke about well, the business they're in, and okay, I'm in the uh, diamond and jewelry business, and I'm on my way to a convention to show my wares. So everybody knew I was traveling with these things, and and so now uh, we both uh, crawl out of the surf, drag ourselves up the beach, and we look at each other, and uh, we realize we're alone on this. A deserted island and now I really am worried because I don't know anything at all about you and if I go to sleep how do I know that you are not going to make sure that when the Coast Guard arrives they're going to find only one survivor and that survivor 
is going to be in possession of a pouch of priceless diamonds, and that survivor's not going to be me. How do I know that? And in the final analysis, if I discover that you um, know all there is to know about early Byzantine frescoes, that doesn't tell me whether you're going to cut my throat in the middle of the night. If uh, I know that you are capable of solving differential equations and you understand calculus, that doesn't tell me at all anything at all about your character and about how you're likely to behave. If you um, know all there is to know about the philosophy of Hegel and the unity of opposites, it tells me nothing at all about you. But if I know what you really believe, well, that would tell me a whole lot about you. And that's really the key thing to understand. People's beliefs are what shape their behavior. And, and that's true for all of us. Um, there's a beautiful fair, very popular with my family, uh, uh, at the end of the summer, always in September, in Puyallup, Washington, known as the Puyallup Fair, and uh, we hardly ever would miss the, the Puyallup Fair. And one of the things they used to have is they had, obviously, uh, uh, you know, uh, rides, scary rides. And uh, I would, on occasion, take my children to the line of people waiting to pay their money or hand in their little ticket to be whirled around and thrown upside down and turned in a huge circle and go up in the air. And we'd stand there looking at the line of people about to go in, and we would hear everybody in the ride over our heads screaming and screaming as, as if they were being dismembered. And, uh, and then we'd go around to the other side, and uh, we'd watch the people coming off smiling and laughing, and, uh, and some of them made their way around to the front of the ride to get back in line for another go at this. And we would sometimes stop people and we'd say, um, uh, you, you see, you're about to go on that ride. Aren't you scared? They'd say, no. I said, well, listen to everybody screaming. And they say, yeah, that's part of the fun. You, you scream because you're frightened. I said, what are you frightened of? And they say, oh, you haven't been on this ride, have you? And I say, no. They say, well, you know, you really think you're going to die up there. You just, you're just screaming. I say, I say, okay, fine. And then when you get out, everything's fine, right? Yeah, they said, yeah. And tell me, did you know as a fact that you were going to die? They said, no, we, we, we knew we wouldn't. So I said, the fact that you knew you were safe in there didn't stop you from screaming. And I remember one girl was like very, she looked at me, never thought about it, and she said, well, at the moment when you're up there, you actually believe you're dead. You just, you're, it's, it's all. So I said, facts don't matter. Your, your facts tell you that everybody gets out of this ride alive, but because of that moment, your belief is that, oh, that's why you scream. Beliefs trump facts when it comes to how we behave. And, and that's really important to understand. People uh, stopped smoking, not when they read, oh, the Surgeon General has determined that smoking is hazardous to your health. No, people stopped smoking when they got a scare. 
when a doctor uh, did a uh, an X-ray, a chest X-ray, and said to them, "I'm seeing marks here I don't like the look of," or when uh, a relative of theirs got sick or a friend of theirs died, that's when people stop smoking. It's when your beliefs change, not when you acquire new facts ever. Now I should tell you that. Um, I am uh, preparing this podcast just before the Jewish Bible Festival of Rosh Hashanah. Uh, That starts on Sunday night, uh, the 29th of September, 2019, and the holiday is September the 30th and Tuesday, uh, October the 1st, 2019. And that means that for those two days, we do not do business, and so the store on our website is shut. And in order to uh, make it as reasonable as possible, because we realize obviously that's an inconvenience uh, for many people who who may not be observing this uh, festival, Uh, What we do is once a year, this time of the year, once a year, we do a short uh, sale on our library packs. We have two library packs, which is uh, a huge collection of everything we have created in the field of ancient Jewish wisdom pertaining to family, faith, friendships, and finances. It's books, it's videos, it's audio CDs, it's all kinds of stuff. And uh, you can find those on our website. And at this time, for a limited period, over the, uh, the high holiday period, these are available at a very special price. Now, you may have some of the things in the library pack, but not everything. It's probably still an excellent purchase, a very worthwhile purchase. And all it means is that you'll have duplicates of some items, which means that you have ready-made available gifts for people who uh, who you'd like to bless, who you'd, into whose lives you'd like to sow. And so that is the thing to do. Head over to RabbiDanielLappin.com, go to the store, and read up about the two library packs. Take a look at the special sale price because of the inconvenience we're causing people. Our store is going to be shut for the – it's called the Jewish New Year, but I prefer calling it by its Hebrew name Rosh Hashanah because this is not a time of putting on funny hats and making resolutions and uh, and having a few drinks too many. No, it's not a New Year celebration at all. The actual Hebrew translation of Rosh Hashanah is head of the year, and it bears the same relationship to the rest of the year as the head does to the body. Uh, a very important part of ancient Jewish wisdom that, uh, if you don't already know, really is useful in your life is the recognition that it is correct to see the human being, to see ourselves as two elements. We're made up of two parts. Uh, one of the, the ways we often think of it is as rider and horse. Now, the, the head directs what the body does, but if you let the body direct what the body does, then you're going to get into a whole heap of pain. And so uh, the important thing is to make sure your head is in charge, not your body, to make sure that the rider is in charge, not the horse. And uh, Rosh Hashanah are these uh, two days when there's an, an important focus on just driving that point home, getting ready. Uh, once a year to renew this concept that uh, 
things don't happen to be just because of outside forces. And by the way, you know, this is a hugely prevalent uh, leftish and secular way of thinking. Uh, Things happen to me because of all that anti-Semitism out there. Things happen to me, all of that racism out there. Things happen to me because of all those capitalists and capitalism out there. Things happen to me because of all those corporations. Things happen to me because all of those pollutions are are caught... We've all, we all are tempted by this incredibly seductive narrative, which is that, no, you are not in charge of your life. Everything that happens in your life is because you are victimized. And, uh, and you know, people um, have often asked me, and I've spoken extensively on this, it's one of the huge mysteries of today, but it isn't really a mystery. It's a mystery that gets asked again and again and again, which is how can liberalism be so compatible with Islam? Why is it? that in the high temples of liberalism, namely American kindergarten, I mean American universities, why is it that in American universities uh, they hate Judaism, they hate Christianity, but oh, do they love Islam? And one of the reasons, and I'll tell you another one just a little bit later in the show, but one of the reasons is that Islam is very fatalistic. It's what Allah wills. And so it is not an accident that in Islamic countries there's very little attempt to control the forces of nature. Uh, You know, when the Dutch had floods that washed away farmland and livestock and even people in Holland, and this is, you know, going back uh, not almost 100 years, uh, those Dutch uh, um, Protestants said nothing doing. And they began building the world's most gigantic seawalls and land reclamation projects to such an extent that the huge Zuiderzee, which is one of the areas that regularly flooded, uh, is now virtually all reclaimed land. But year after year after year, the monsoons and the floods uh, devastate places like Bangladesh, many, many other Muslim countries, and uh, year after year after year, people get washed away, thousands of people drown, and yet nothing. Why, you know, wouldn't it be a good idea to pool their money and issue government bonds and go ahead and build protections against the sea, right? Wouldn't it be a good idea? Well, only if your culture, if your underlying worldview says God smiles on us if we try and fix nature to make it a little less sinister, uh, to make nature a little less threatening and a little less dangerous. But uh, there is a fatalism in Islam, and in general, you do not find Muslim countries, and the more intensely orthodox Muslim they are, the less inclined they are to do things to um, defeat some of the problems that nature inflicts. And I've pointed out in the past that meteorological incidents such as uh, hurricanes on America's east coast and monsoons in uh, parts of Asia, meteorological events that are of objectively the same magnitude, the same category of storm, the same level of surge and tsunami and flooding, um, the same level causes so few deaths in America 
that they even have to count people who had heart attacks in hospitals during that time uh, in order to come up with figures that justify the funding that FEMA gets. But in Asia, those figures generally uh, uh, are hugely um, uh, terrifying, huge numbers. The reason? Because here in America, the culture is a Judeo-Christian Bible-based culture, which says you do to nature whatever you have to do in order to make life safer for human beings. Uh, And in uh, other countries, in Asia in general, Muslim countries in particular, that is uh, is something that simply doesn't exist. So that's the concept of Rosh Hashanah, that you are very much master of your destiny, captain of your soul. You actually direct your life. And uh, and it's something that's immensely powerful. It's uh, uh, it's two days of not uh, cele- you know not celebrating in terms of partying, and, but it's it's a fairly solemn two days. At any rate, uh, the store is shut, and so um, when the store is open, when it's not Monday and Tuesday in in this year of 2019, uh, then for a short period of time. The library packs are indeed available at uh, a once-a-year-only price. So go ahead and take advantage of that. I think it's worthwhile. So if you were to tell me that you know how to use a metalworking lathe to produce a perfect metal cube from bar stock, and, and that takes some doing, by the way. It, it's really quite brilliant. But you tell me you know how to do that. That doesn't tell me anything about uh, how you're likely to behave in any given situation. It doesn't tell me anything about how you vote. It doesn't tell me how you are likely to raise your children. It doesn't tell me how trustworthy people in your family are likely to be. There isn't anything there at all. But If our discussion revolves instead around not what you know, but what you believe, uh, let's talk about whether you think and whether you believe, I should have said believe, uh, whether you believe that people appeared on this planet uh, in, in what so far seems a somewhat unique set of circumstances, um, and whether or, 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 or we, we, we arrived on this planet through a divine process created in God's image or whether we're here on this planet through a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution, well, that's not a fact. That's your belief either way. And that tells me much more about you. If we have a discussion... And uh, the discussion revolves around whether I believe that people are just a part of nature. There are uh, radishes and carrots and wolves and tarantula spiders and human beings. And that we're just a part of that vast and colorful spectrum of life on this planet. Or alternatively... I believe that instead, 
there is something called the natural world, and it's got minerals, and it's got vegetables, and it's got animals. But then, in a completely separate category, is something called human beings, who are above nature, and uh, who are uh, whose relationship to nature is described in the first two chapters of the Bible. Now you tell me that's your belief, and I understand a whole lot more about you. In fact, I could probably predict a great deal about you. It's, it's really important to understand. What you know tells me nothing about you and tells you nothing about me. But what we believe is entirely different. And we have to understand that belief has very little to do with facts, there's the world of facts, and there's the world of beliefs. And as human beings, we are different from animals as far as we know in that we operate with both those, uh, the, those things. And something that advertisers know, by the way, is that whether you're buying a new car or whether you're choosing a, a brand of fried fish sticks or what, whatever it is, generally speaking, our buying decisions are based on beliefs, not facts. Uh, when we choose a lawyer or a doctor or any other professional to take care of specific problems in our lives, generally we choose based on our beliefs, not our facts. We know very little in the way of facts. As a matter of fact, we rely on the state to, to know that our doctor has a license to practice medicine and that he went to medical school. But that's entirely a belief that he's good at what he does and that all of that is beliefs. Uh, and it's based on conversations with people who like him. Oh, you can't go wrong with this doctor. He's great. You hear that from one or two friends. You pick your doctor. You're good. But it's always based on, well, let me not say entirely, but certainly more on belief than on fact. And advertisers and marketers really understand that. And the only snag is that a lot of us don't fully understand that about ourselves. And I tell you all of that in order to be able to tell you that we are all hardwired. All of us human beings are all hardwired to believe in something that is more than just being born and eating and reproducing and dying. We are human beings, and while as far as we know, survival is enough for most animals, for human beings, there's got to be more than simply surviving and dying. And that brings us to the world of belief. We're hardwired to believe in something bigger than our own, than the mechanical details of our own lives. Something that makes our lives meaningful, something we devote ourselves to, and above all, and this one is going to surprise you, something we can make sacrifices for. That is as rooted in our beings as our need for oxygen and our need for water and our need for fuel in the way of food. Um, we have a similar need to sacrifice, to be able to give of ourselves to something else. Now, this is one of the great delights of having children. 
there is meaning in our lives, not just because we've got little mini-me's running around the house and spilling things and making a mess and keeping us awake at night. No, it's because they need us. And we make very real and tangible sacrifices for our children. Everybody does. And that fulfills something profoundly needy inside each and every one of us. It's that hardwired need to sacrifice, to give to something beyond our own physical survival needs. It's really important to understand. And so uh, I tell you this because the shocking information I have to impart to you is that environmentalism and climate change is all part of the theology of the end of the world. That's what it's all about. It is all part of what I think of as the religion of urban atheists. And by the way, I just want to clarify, you do understand that urban atheists may well often attend church or synagogue. That doesn't mean they're not urban atheists. But um, urban atheists do have a religion. And essentially, the two alternative and incompatible religions are based on this fundamental idea. Human beings are just another part of nature. Uh, you've got alligators and mice and, yes, llamas, and you've got baboons and chimpanzees, and you have human beings, homo sapiens. That's all it is. And on the other hand, a belief system that says, yes, you've got uh, all kinds of minerals and all kinds of vegetables and all kinds of animals, but then standing apart and, yes, touched by the finger of God himself, you've got the human being. Those are two incompatible belief systems. And if I tell you which one of those I believe, because we're not talking facts now, we're talking beliefs. And if I told you which one of those I believe, you would legitimately know a whole lot about me. You really would, and vice versa. So it's important to get that clear in your thinking before I go much further. Now, you're probably familiar with a Bible verse which appears uh, most uh, prominently in the 11th chapter of Isaiah. It's a verse which uh, very often gets quoted, more often gets misquoted, and the, uh, only the, the tiny part of the entire verse which gets quoted is, for a child shall lead them. And the, uh, the reason it gets misquoted is that this is such a secular way of thinking. The idea that seasoned and experienced adults should be led by the pure, innocent perfection of a child. And that's the way we should go. If you think about it, this is really no more than a variation of the philosophy of that dreadful French intellectual, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who always spoke so frequently about the noble savage. Well, there never has been a noble savage. 
whether one looks at the indigenous Indians of, of North America herding entire thousands, herds of buffalo over the cliff, burning down forests, torturing, scalping. Uh, the idea of, a, you know, that was what a, a primitive a culture did. Uh, the, the cannibals of New Guinea, cannibals in Africa. Uh, yeah, the idea that somewhere in our Edenic past existed this perfect noble savage, untainted by civilization, untarnished by Western religion, and that if only we could all revert back, we could all have so much to learn from this noble savage. Well, a figment of Rousseau's imagination, and it's just a variation on the misquoting of that biblical verse, for a child shall lead them. Again, this idea that the accumulated wisdom of Western civilization is nothing but a hill of beans when you compare it to the intuitive goodness and sweetness of a child who could really teach us a whole lot. Uh, obviously, I'm referring to the 16- or 15-year-old girl from Sweden, Greta, who has recently been lecturing the United Nations. She's been lecturing the European Union. She's been lecturing uh, leaders in business and politics around the world and before whom they, these grown, experienced men, you know, of varying degrees of wisdom and knowledge, but still, uh, that these grown men should be genuflecting to Joan of Arc. Oh, that's right. Yes, it is Joan of Arc all over again. Uh, poor Joan of Arc in the early 1400s during the Hundred Years' Wars and the England's at war with France. And this young French girl has uh, religious visions, which uh, we, we don't really know the details of. But whatever it was, uh, in the sheer desperation that the French were feeling at their dire military circumstances, uh, with very little in the way of options, they began to follow her guidance and she... Uh, to some extent, we don't know the details. After all, it's quite a while ago. Uh, she led them into battle, and they prevailed and did well. And she was burned at the stake before she turned 20 um, by the British who captured her. And uh, she was later on uh, made a saint. Uh, this is almost irresistible. Um, a pure, virginal, innocent young girl um, is is the guide, is the leader. Yes, for a child shall lead them. My friends, this is very seductive stuff. It's heady stuff. It's intoxicating. And if you have any inclinations towards the urban faith of atheism and secular fundamentalism, uh, then you find it enormously appealing. Um, understanding this was a very brilliant screenwriter. Unfortunately, she passed away three or four years ago, I think, maybe a bit more. Uh, but her name was Melissa Matheson. And Melissa Matheson collaborated with Steven Spielberg in 1982 uh, to produce The Extraterrestrial, uh, the, the movie E.T., and I don't know if you've seen it or not, but if by any chance you should happen to see it in the near future, look out for what I'm about to tell you because you will see what's happening. Basically, uh, if, if you are going to be writing a book or producing a movie or um, doing anything in that sense in the creative arts and you are able to do it 
in a way that rides the wave of some popular sentiment, then you are almost guaranteed success. In other words, if you can come up with something that just resonates deep in the soul of many human beings, then it's going to do well. One of the reasons that we think of the plays of William Shakespeare as enduring classics is because once you are able to read it and you can get past the Middle English and you can grasp what's going on, uh, it's almost impossible for any thoughtful and somewhat experienced human being, somebody who's lived for a couple of years, impossible to read a Shakespeare play without saying, wow, he nailed, that is human nature. He's really got it. I mean, I know people like that, you know. And you say that, and you say, these are great pieces of writing. So um, uh, E.T. by uh, produced by um, uh, Spielberg. Well, what did it do? Well, the whole thing was there, a child shall lead them. Now, that verse gets misquoted, as I said, because if you read it in the Hebrew, and even if you read it in the English in context with everything else going on there in Isaiah chapter 11, it's talking about uh, messianic days, and uh, in the Lord's good time, the world gets transformed, and there's the lion and the leopard and the wolf and the goat and the lamb, and all of these animals, it says, and they and the and a child leads them. In other words, uh, the child is able to lead these animals without getting gobbled up by the wolf, etc., etc. But the notion that this is a suggestion that a child will lead human beings and and experienced and wise men and women will follow this child, uh, this is a leftist, um, seductive dream. That that's all it is. So, uh, but e, but uh, Spielberg captures this mood very much, and in many ways, if you remember that movie, you will see. And I I don't know that Spielberg understood this. Maybe he did. I have reasons to believe that Melissa Matheson understood this and knew what she was doing. But uh, here again, it's this completely innocent, childlike creature, extraterrestrial. Uh, admittedly not human, but that makes it even better because he comes from heaven and he's going to go back to heaven. And um, and they're evil people who are dressed like Roman centurions, <laughs> uh, you might remember, who are trying to track him down and get him. But uh, he wants to go home. And uh, you'll remember they put him on an operating table, and what you see is that um, that Christian symbolism of that beating red heart uh, in the uh, in the operating room. Anyways, uh, suffice it to say that one of the reasons I'm sure that that movie did so well is it sort of resonated. I'm not saying everybody you saw said, oh, biblical theme here, hello, biblical theme. It, it didn't have to. Um, it just set the ganglions in the human soul vibrating. People who had any religious sensitivity, people who were comfortable and familiar with biblical and nomenclature watched that movie, and they may not have even known exactly what it was that makes it work. You know, it's like a piece of music can sometimes just really sing to your soul and elicit in you an emotional response you didn't even know you had, and you have no idea what exactly caused it. Uh, that's the kind of, of thing it is. And, uh, and so it is that uh, one of the reasons that environmentalism captures people so completely 
um, is that it sings to that same religious underlying theme, the idea of a perfect Garden of Eden. Uh, from which expulsion is inevitable if we can't do anything to stop it. And this perfect garden is already being ruined, and we only have, you may remember, in 12 years we're all done. It's all over. Uh, And this is the common theme now. Children are being taught this, and in this show I'm not going to go into the harm that is done to children, uh, portraying this frightening, terrifying world when adults to whom they look up and admire inform them in full seriousness that everything is over and we're dying. And, and there are even schools where children are encouraged to inform on their parents. And what could be a more communist theme than that, going back to the Jungi Pioneeri of the Stalinist days of the Soviet Union, uh, to inform on their parents if recycling is not being adequately handled. Now, talking of whether recycling is being adequately handled, we should realize that recycling is entirely a religious ritual. Uh, Think of it as the sacred sacrament of secularism. Essentially, it's a rite of atonement for the sin of excess. That's what this is all about. That's why people recycle. Wait a second, you're going to say, there are very good reasons to recycle. Well, actually, no, there aren't. Um, Let's look at the supposed reasons, shall we? The one reason is that it saves energy, and this is a great good because not only are we short of energy because we live in a world of shortage of everything that matters, but even more importantly, the more energy that is used, the more carbon is being burnt, and and the more carbon dioxide is getting into the atmosphere, um, and the, uh, the more heating will take place, and the more climate change will destroy life as we know it on Earth within 12 years. So uh, one supposed reason for recycling is indeed to use less energy. Uh, The second reason for recycling is that we're running out of landfill. Um, Suffice it to say that uh, Bill Blassie, current mayor of New York, uh, took it upon himself to decree that um, the city of New York will no longer use landfills, will no longer dump their trash. Uh, All of it is going to be recycled, in spite of the fact that every ton of recycled, and you can imagine how many tons uh, New York produces every day. You've got to realize the numbers we're talking here. Every ton costs $300 more to process than a landfill would cost. And so, once again, from a logical point of view, uh, or asking residents, are you willing to pay that extra tax? Are you willing to pay that recycling fee so that we do not use the landfill that other neighboring communities like Staten Island was only too happy because they made money from the fact that uh, New York City was using a landfill there? Uh, And to this, well, I'll come back to that in a moment. Let me just say that... um, Of course that doesn't happen, because when you're dealing with virtue, it's no longer a question of money. You see, like I told you earlier, we're all built with a hardwired commitment to sacrifice for a cause. And so whether that means buying a battery-driven car, or whether it means uh, 
keeping the thermostat down low and putting on a sweater so that we'll burn less energy or turning off the air conditioner because the more energy we use, the more the power station has to burn coal or oil to generate electricity, more carbon in the atmosphere. And you've got people who are trying to get less on airplanes. These are good, sincere people. They are religious people. That's my point. Please understand. And, and that's all that matters. In other words, whoever wants to do this should go ahead and do it and be happy, uh, but not on the basis that this is science. And you've all heard the idea of, oh, this is a scientific consensus. It isn't. The fact is that there are 500 scientists who produced a letter recently, and you don't hear anything about them. And their credentials and their numbers are uh, certainly equivalent, if not superior, uh, to those who bemoan the climate crisis. And so uh, uh, recycling, certainly not um, a factual scientific thing. It's based on belief. Uh, are we running out of space? Not at all. Absolutely not. There are numerous rural communities that love having uh, garbage dumps. Um, the U.S. Tennis Open in Queen is played every year on land that is, is, is covered over garbage dump. Um, the idea that this poses a huge threat to the nation's water, this can only be said by people who have zero scientific understanding. It's simply not true. Um, landfill, there's plenty of it. There's more than, than you can ever imagine. Um, to just give you an idea, not that I'm suggesting that we turn the Grand Canyon into a garbage dump and, and then uh, asphalt it over and turn it into a drive-in movie where you can see movies of how the Grand Canyon used to look. But, uh, you know, the Grand Canyon is a pretty big place, but compared to the rest of America, it's rather small. Um, if we use the Grand Canyon as a garbage dump, for all of the trash produced in every city, town, and village in America, and somehow or another, all the garbage, all the empty tuna cans and mayonnaise jars, and all the plastic bottles, and absolutely everything that is thrown away in every household around the United States of America, including Alaska and Hawaii, and all of that was put into the Grand Canyon. And we did that for 1,000 years. That's right, for 1,000 years. You still would not come anywhere near to filling up the Grand Canyon. So much so that it would, if you fell into the Grand Canyon, your fall wouldn't be cushioned by a nice layer of garbage because you'd still fall so far that your end would be swift and certain. So, again, uh, just to clarify, now just imagine, forget the Grand Canyon now, but there are garbage dumps all over America. There are cities that are extremely happy. One, it's, one of the, uh, it's one of the economic foundations of many communities around the country. They operate garbage dumps. These are regulated. These are uh, perfectly safe. They, the, the precautions taken, do they go way beyond anything absolutely needed? But um, recycling is a perfectly viable and very economic option for dealing with trash. Okay, well then, you know, recycling will um, uh, saves resources, right? If, if, if it doesn't save landfill, if that's not an issue, and it is not, well then, how about the fact at least it saves aluminum and plastic? Well, if that were true, 
then there would be an economic basis, right? It wouldn't be $300 more to recycle than it is to uh, to um, uh, trash because there'd be a recovery from all the plastic and, and aluminum. Well, as you probably know, the cost of raw materials, plastic and aluminum, uh, have gone down. Uh, there is no economic way to recycle. All those... Uh, plastics and glass and jars that you religiously recycle. And in fact, you even, I've often thought about this, that uh, if your local city council sent a Bible to every household and said, we just think uh, this is something we want you all to read and to, to take seriously, can you imagine what an outcry? But when they send out three little plastic con garbage cans, right, one blue, one green, one white, and one is for glass, one's for aluminum, one's for this, one's for that, and you and me, we, we religiously genuflect before it every uh, morning or every evening. We come in, we, we offer sacrifices to these little altars in the religious corners of our kitchen. That's what this is, because... There is no, we are not running out of aluminum, and we're not running out of plastic. And if we were, then there would be a market. But the only reason there's a market in some states for some of these items is because it has been um, artificially declared by state government, where they have insisted on a financial deposit in order for these things to be recovered. Uh, and that's why people, you know, homeless people walk around collecting cans because they're going to get five cents but it comes from the government it doesn't come actually comes from their fellow citizens but it certainly does not come from the Al uh, the aluminum corporation of america alcoa it is not coming from reynolds aluminum no uh, aluminum manufacturers have no interest in used aluminum cans it doesn't work so we're not running short of the resources so that's no reason to recycle we're not running short on the uh, uh, on the land space must be that the energy we save by recycling uh, that is the answer and you won't be shocked to hear that that unfortunately is absolutely not the answer at all as a matter of fact you know how the city tells you to rinse out those jars before you recycle them if you use hot water to do that you are causing the release of even more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by the electricity or the gas you use for heating your water way beyond any value that can possibly be extracted from the piece of glass. Um, glass manufacturers buy raw sand out of which they make glass. They do not buy old glasses It's just or old bottles. It's just not worth it. And so uh, from an energy uh, consideration point of view it simply does not make any sense at all uh, it doesn't make sense from uh, the idea of saving energy it doesn't make sense from landfill and just in general in an economic analysis recycling is on the wrong side of uh, of a of several centuries worth of long-term global trends uh, the cost of labor has been going up the real cost of raw materials has been declining Right, which is why you can buy so much more stuff than your grandparents or great-grandparents could. Uh, labor is going up, cost of raw materials down. So it's just dumb to use our precious time sorting through our garbage. Just know you are genuflecting at the altar 
of the urban religion of atheism or secular fundamentalism. That's all that is going on there, and it's important to understand it. I should mention that uh, in some cities like Seattle, um, the Seattle has inspectors they send around to uh, go through your trash curbside in order to see that you're not putting things in the wrong containers, that you are recycling. You got that? The city employs inspectors to go through your garbage to see what you're throwing away and to make sure you are recycling. Uh, some citizens have sued the city for invasion of privacy issues. I haven't followed up as to how those lawsuits are proceeding. But once again, uh, got to recognize this makes no economic sense and uh, it doesn't do anyone any good at all. It doesn't do the environment any good. It's it, no good at all. But there's a belief system based on the idea of shortage, and that's really what's going on here. It's something we have to understand. Uh, it's interesting to me that uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, I found 11 separate references to God warning us not to worship nature not to worship the green tree, not to worship the rocks. Um, this is very interesting because, as a general rule, the Bible does not prohibit us from doing any activity that we feel absolutely no inclination to do. And if you do encounter a biblical prohibition that appears to be that, well, it just means that you don't understand it. For instance, there's a biblical prohibition of not cooking a goat in its mother's milk. It's mentioned three times in the five books of Moses. And uh, as you may well know, uh, you know, not a lot of people feel this incredible uh, seductive compulsion to cook a goat in its mother's milk. And that's one of the reasons that we know that that's not the real meaning. Uh, the real meaning, and particularly emphasized by the three uh, re repetitions, and I've written about this, by the way, in Thought Tools, which you can again see on our website. Uh, and you can also, uh, in the library pack I've been talking about, is to be found three volumes of collected Thought Tools. Anyway, in Thought Tools, I've spoken about how and why we know that these references to not cooking the goat in its mother's milk means the strict separation of all dairy and meat foods. And so uh, we do not eat cheeseburgers, for instance. Uh, we have two completely separate sides in the kitchen, uh, a side where all the meat dishes and meat pots are and a side where all the milk dairy uh, pots are. Because we know that not cooking a goat in its mother's milk is not the actual meaning. Uh, when it tells you not to uh, have a relationship with your grandmother, and then you know also that there's much more to that. And again, examination of the Hebrew text and ancient Jewish wisdom reveals what some of the concupiscent allures of human beings are being warned against by the grandmother reference. And uh, so it is that with these repeated uh, warnings of not to worship nature, uh, the, the answer is that we have an inbuilt tendency to worship nature. In other words, uh, there is, as I've said before, there is a hardwired tendency in each of us um, to worship something bigger than ourselves. And if it's not going to be God then it is going to be nature.
and whether in primitive times, oh, look at this, they bow down and they, they worship the sun and the moon and they worship rocks and lakes and oceans and lightning and thunder. Uh, this is no different from what we do today. Absolutely no different whatsoever. Um, you know, it used to be you mustn't use paper goods like straws or paper plates uh, because we're running out of trees. You may remember that one. And so using paper was evil and horrible. Well, it quickly became apparent that we're not running out of trees. Trees are, are just like corn. You plant them, you harvest them, you use them, you plant new ones. We're not running out of trees. Feel comfortable using as much paper as you like. Oh, no, this is it. It's, it's filling up the waste dumps. It's taking up space. Oh, it's ending up in the ocean. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of the islands bigger than Texas in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, right? Just floating in the Pacific Ocean. And that is part of the apocalypse that is waiting for us in 12 years' time because we refuse to uh, order the government to give it the power to utterly demolish our civilization, regardless of the fact that obviously China and India will pay no attention, as indeed they shouldn't. Um, but what about this island of floating trash in the Pacific? Uh, every time you see a picture of it, what you really see, and they show you this is a bunch of plastic bottles lying on the beach. But how come with Google Earth and with satellite photography and with all kinds of uh, drone and, 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 uh, and uh, other photography going on, why don't we have a nice aerial picture of this huge Texas-sized island of floating garbage look it's amazing to me that people believe this stuff it isn't there and people believe it you know i think it's probably like when people used to tease me when i was a kid um so you believe in god i can't see him and i would say yeah i know you can't see him i can't see him either i still believe he's there it's exactly right hey you can't see that island the size of texas a floating plastic in the middle of the pacific ocean yeah i know i can't see it i still believe it's there Aren't you surprised that you haven't seen a picture of it? Wouldn't it be a dramatic photograph? Well, you can't photograph it because of the ultraviolet light makes it hard to see. Oh, you know what? It's actually two inches below the surface of the water, and the sunlight reflecting on the water means you can't see it. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. Got it. All right. But it doesn't matter because we're not talking about facts. We're talking about beliefs, and beliefs shape human behavior far more than facts do. And so the question is uh, how you believe about the role of human beings. Either we are appointed as stewards of all of creation, and our job is, in fact, to modify creation. By the way, nothing in what I'm saying is um, to suggest that Judeo-Christian biblical thinking uh, encourages wanton destruction. The question is uh, what are the limits, what we are allowed to do, and yes, we are allowed to convert swamps into sustaining and nourishing fields. There is nothing inherently virtuous about a malaria-ridden swamp just because it's the way it was originally. Garden of Eden, right? That's the way it used to be. We've got to get back to that. So much so that there are places in the world where after the cost of not only a lot of blood but also a lot of money, dangerous swamps were drained and the malaria was eliminated, the mosquitoes are gone, and uh, in its place we have nurturing fields of agriculture. 
many places, no, some places, are actually flooding those fields again to turn them back into swamps. I get it. Yeah, with beliefs, that's what you do. You do irrational things, right? It's like me only eating kosher food. Hey, you idiot, don't you know that kosher food costs twice as much as non-kosher meat? Yeah, I know that. And I know it's irrational, but it's my belief. That's all there is to it. And the, uh, the belief of the religion of secular fundamentalism practiced so ardently and so piously by urban atheists is no less demanding in its orthodoxies. Now, uh, you either take the first few chapters of Genesis seriously, that uh, human beings are the apex of creation, or you reject that and you adopt the approach that we're just part of creation. Now, there are a number of reasons, and, and I'm addressing them in, in the future in another venue. There are a number of reasons why it is that uh, liberalism is so comfortable with Islam. Liberalism cannot stand Judeo-Christian faith. It loves Islam. And, and you find that on the university campus and all other bastions, kindergarten campus, I'm sorry. You find it at all other bastions of uh, of liberal orthodoxy and one of the reasons a very interesting reason one of them is that it is only the bible only the defining document of judaism and christianity that we find this description of the creation of the world in considerable detail highlighting the fact that man is different from everything else it's only with man that we find may, male and female created in this very specific way. And it is only with man that we find that God creates him. And uh, in chapter 2 with, uh, in, in the Hebrew, there are actually different words used for the creation of man, and the, where it says in the English translation, and he formed... Uh, it speaks in the earlier part of chapter 2. He formed the animals of the field, all the creatures of the world, but then the word is spelled quite differently when it comes to the forming of mankind because the central feature there is that mankind is not just a variation of chimpanzees and orangutans. Uh, chimpanzees and orangutans are closer to mice and, uh, and cows and kangaroos than they are to mankind. So uh, that is the central feature. You, what's really interesting is that I checked in my copy of the Koran uh, to see everything it says about the creation of the world. I wanted to see if I could say, and Islam also takes the position, that human beings stand above creation and that we are able to use creation for our benefit and that means putting up dams to collect water. It means putting up seawalls to stop floods. It means developing medicine to combat diseases. It means converting um, fields and jungle into agricultural. I mean, this idea of the Amazon jungle, by the way, more lies and lies and lies makes no difference because all of this is beliefs, not facts. But uh, the idea of, of turning jungle into uh, producing agricultural fields? Absolutely, yes. So I checked to see, and uh, the creation of the world in the Quran is dealt with in Surah number 25. And by the way, please understand, I fully concede uh, my ignorance on the Quran. So if any Islamic scholar wants to point me in, in the direction of, uh, of something that says differently, 
uh, by all means. And, uh, and I, I also just want to stress, um, when I say my copy of the Koran, let me read to you, and, and this is not to a, a pat on the back or anything. This sounds a little bit like what people used to sometimes say in the early 1900s. Oh, some of my best friends are Jewish. I don't dislike Jews. Some of my best friends are Jewish. Look, I have real problems with uh, Islam. I think it is a damaging, untrue, destructive faith. I'm sorry. And I, and I understand fully that these are hurtful words for the many Muslims that um, are listening. And, and I, I very much appreciate you listening, and I cherish your involvement. I love your letters, and, uh, and I, I'm sorry I do not mean to hurt you. Um, and I don't in any way diminish our friendship. So, yes, I, I do enjoy friendships. Uh, just recently at a, a lecture in which I had spoken about um, Islam and I'd spoken about uh, um, the siege of Vienna. It's a, it's a theme of mine that, that comes up every now and then. Some of you who, uh, some of you may have heard me recently, but at, at a lecture like that, a, a Muslim came up and we chatted for a while afterwards and, and he said, look, I don't agree with your view of my faith. Um, but I found your lecture very interesting, and the other parts of it are very useful. I intend using them in my life, and, and we exchanged business cards, and we've uh, agreed to stay in touch. But the, the Quran I read from when I uh, studied the creation of the world through Islamic eyes, Surah 25 in the Quran, I should just mention, and as I say, not, not for any uh, uh, shallow reason, there's an inscription in the front which says, Dear Rabbi Lappin, I appreciated the interview that you allowed me and our conversation. I want you to know that I hold you in high esteem with gratitude and with love. From Rahman Jamali, correspondent, Islamic Future magazine, and uh, the place and the date where we, we met. And, and he gave me as a gift this copy of the Quran, which I've kept and, uh, and I occasionally refer to. I don't refer to it often simply because I know that an outsider cannot interpret the holy writings of uh, another faith. You just can't. Um, these things have meanings that the outsider is not privy to. And, uh, and very, as I've just pointed out, you know, words like don't cook the goat in its mother's milk, uh, that's what it says in English, but it's not actually what it means. And so I'm, I'm very cautious and, uh, and open to correction. But from what I can see at the moment, um, Islam does not have this very crucial theme, which we are told right up front. I mean, you're no more than two chapters into God's message to mankind, and there it is. Hey, folks, nature is not what it's all about. It's man. Man is supreme over nature, and God gives nature into our hands. As a matter of fact, not only are there 11 separate warnings about not worshiping nature, showing that we obviously have a hardwired tendency to want to worship nature, uh, in spite of that, we, um, uh, we recognize that this is something that we feel, something we're not allowed to do. But right at the beginning, we're told, hey, don't fall into the trap of worshiping nature. Don't think man is just another part of nature. The, uh, the 500 scientists I cited earlier, by the way, the stuff's easy to find. Um, but you won't find the mainstream media talking about it at all. 500 of them 
signed a letter sent to the United Nations for this past week. And among many other things, it says very clearly the world has warmed at less than half the originally predicted rate. And by the way, you can count on that. It's true. Uh, climate policy relies on inadequate models. More carbon dioxide is beneficial for nature, greening the earth. There is no statistical evidence that global warming is intensifying hurricanes, floods, droughts, and such like natural disasters or making them more frequent. There is no climate emergency. Therefore, there is no cause for panic and alarm. We strongly oppose the harmful and unrealistic net zero carbon dioxide policy proposed for 2050. That's kind of important. Uh, do you remember all the old criticisms of the Catholic Church centuries ago? Oh, they sell indulgences, right? The, apparently the Pope, and I don't even know if this is true, but this is the criticism that uh, you could pay money and then you could go ahead and do the sin, right? Well, what do you think buying carbon offsets is all about? I mean, there are, there are actually travel agencies who, when they sell you an airline ticket, ask you, if you also want to buy the carbon offset that will make your air flight carbon neutral. Okay, what is that if not purchasing a religious indulgence? Look, uh, a lot of things start making sense as soon as you recognize that what we're dealing with here is a religion. It is an entire belief system. And um, the funniest thing of all is, is when uh, little Greta Thunberg, Joan of Arc of environmentalism, who lectures um, men who act like buffoons and idiots, whether it's in the British Parliament or in the United Nations, and they all bow their heads and they speak, oh, we all, we do have to listen to it. Yeah, it's, it's exactly. But... Um, yeah, it is a religion. She said, oh, we, won't we listen to the scientists? Well, <laughs> yeah, uh, to the ones who have drunk the Kool-Aid. But how about the 500 scientists who just recently submitted a letter, 500 of them? Now, that you won't read anything about because it doesn't fit the prevailing vision. And you've got to remember that uh, nobody has arguments about facts. Have you noticed that? There are no arguments about facts, right? If, um, if, if you and I meet and we're trying to decide whether an ohm is a measure of capacitance or inductance or resistance in electrical circuits, we're not going to have an argument about it. You know, if you say it's a measure of resistance and I say it's a measure of capacitance, then we don't have an argument about it. We just say, hey, listen, can we just establish this before we go further? So would you mind, like, would you just look it up? And, uh, and I'd come back and say, gee, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was completely mistaken. I thought it was about capacitance, but you're right. It's about resistance. And done. We continue our discussion. People don't argue about facts. Nobody does, Right. Uh, how many miles is it from Los Angeles to Las Vegas? We don't have an argument about it. We just find out because people do not argue and fight about facts. When people argue and fight and make war and, and debate, it's always over beliefs. Right? Nobody argues about, seriously, nobody argues about whether the earth is flat. They don't. But they argue about whether evolution is true yeah because it's a belief system of course we argue about that and we argue about whether oh the climate change is the biggest crisis who was this a politician recently um 
I, gosh, I'm sorry, I forget who it was. There's been a few of them, I think. One of the Democratic candidates for the nomination, I believe. Um, yeah, climate change is the biggest threat facing humanity. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so, actually. Um, and, yeah, people say things like that when they are in the grips of religious belief. And here's another thing that um, that uh, the um, secular fundamentalism as the faith of urban atheists has in common with Islam, and that is they force it on non-believers, right? Other than uh, a period a long time ago, uh, long before the Protestant Reformation, uh, when Christianity has no longer done that, but Islam forces itself on non-believers. It's, it's been its style, it's been its approach, and um, and again, I I know that verses in Quran are not um, necessarily what they may appear to be, but we certainly see from the behavior of devotees that people who don't accept Islam are killed, and uh, in you know in airplane hijackings over the many years. Um, Jews and Christians spoke fearfully about whether they should conceal their faith because the hijackers were letting Muslims were treated well and Jews and Christians were either killed or threatened with death. Uh, the uh, hijackers of the ocean liner, the Kilo Loro, uh, threw Mr. Klinghoffer overboard just because he was Jewish. And so that idea that you force your belief on the non-believers is something that the religion of climate change shares with the religion of Islam. And um, in conclusion, people have often said to me, oh, you know, you speak about the Judeo-Christian tradition as if they're the same. You should know they're not the same. You know, and I look, just, you know, calm down, just calm down. I never said the theologies are the same. Obviously, they're different theologies. But the value system that the theology produces is much closer between Judaism and Christianity than either of them are to the uh, system of ethics and behavior and values created by secular fundamentalism. That's what you've got to see. So uh, are there slight differences between Judaism or Christianity? And call them whatever you like, slight or big. But when compared to the differences between the believers in the Bible— and the faith of secular fundamentalism, that gulf is so hugely and enormously unbridgeable that it makes the value system of Judaism and Christianity very similar. And the essence of that is this whole question of man versus nature, where secular fundamentalism stresses that man is just a part of nature. And that's one of the reasons, I know this is bizarre, but I'm sure many of you have heard some of the more uh, aggressive and fanatical uh, leaders of that religion um, speak about how we need fewer people on the world and even ideally no people. And this is one of the reasons that you will find um, confession ceremonies, and by the way, these are easily available online, confession ceremonies where people do atonement praying to plants. They gather together a bunch of potted plants and they pray to them. A bunch of people dressed up in clerical garb and worshipped at a at a glacier in Switzerland recently. Uh, this is amazing stuff because if I wouldn't have told you that this is happening now, and if you would just hear about these things ordinarily, you would have said this is stuff from the Middle Ages or earlier. This is primitive tribalism where people worship nature. No, this is contemporary. 
because it's how we were created. If you don't like the Bible narrative laying out the relationship between mankind and the natural world, then I'm afraid you're hardwired to accept the alternative. And the Bible says repeatedly, don't worship nature. It doesn't make any difference. That's precisely exactly what it is that we are going to do. And that, my friends, is only a tiny amount of what there is to uh, learn and understand about this hysteria, this religious war that has captured the heart of the secular West and has caused it to behave in truly suicidal ways. But I leave all of that for you to explore for the moment. Don't forget to share with me anything you come up with uh, because it will find its way into a future episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show right here where you're listening to this one. And uh, the way to do that, you go to our website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, there's an About Us tab under that, Contact Us, and in there you just shoot me a message, and I will be very grateful to hear from you in general, and particularly if you have more insights into how it is that the religion of secular fundamentalism and its sacred sacraments of environmentalism are truly threatening the survival of Western civilization if the stuff doesn't get stopped instantly. So uh, while you're at the website at rabbidaniellappin.com, please also uh, feel free to explore on the store uh, the library packs. There are two library packs. They're on special price right now. If you're listening to this show much later, as obviously many, many people do, that may not be applicable because it's only for a short while, but uh, it is there for now a special sale price on the library packs because during the month of October 2019, uh, many, many days are the Bible festivals of Day of Atonement, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Tabernacles, that the store will not be open. I know that's inconvenient, and I'm sorry for that. We, we love selling you our resources. We love making them available to you for improving the quality of your life in the areas that really matter, your friendships, your social connections, your family connections, your financial matters, and your faith in your connection with God. All of those things are things we love selling to you, and we love hearing from you after they've brought blessing into your lives. But um, there it is. The store's closed for the Jewish holidays, and while it's open, you can benefit from that sale price. So, my friends, until we're able to be together next week, I wish you really good times with your family, with your friends, with your faith, and with your finances. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.